Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, good evening, good afternoon and good morning wherever you are and welcome to our online event, China and the World in the Post-COVID Era, a new agenda of public policy, hosted by the LSE School of Public Policy. My name is Bing Chuan Meng, and I'm Associate Professor in the Department of Media Communications at LSE. I'm also the co-director of the LSE Fudan Global Public Policy Center. I'm very pleased to be chairing this event today and happy to be welcoming our distinguished speakers virtually to the LSE. Now, before I introduce the speakers, just uh, I have a few announcements. This public event marks and celebrates the launch of the LSE Fudan Global Public Policy Center. Um, the center will support collaborative research on global public policy, foster multidisciplinary cooperation, and enhance communication between Fudan and LSE to generate research of global impact. This event also forms part of LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative, a series imagining what the world would look like after the crisis and how we get there. This series will lead up to the LSE Festival 2020, which this year is taking place from Monday the 13th to Saturday the 18th, June 2020. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE post COVID. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. After our speaker's presentation and panel discussion, we will open the floor to Q&A with the audience. When you come to the Q&A portion of our uh, event to submit your question, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will post as many as possible. Please let us also know your name and affiliation when you post the question. Now, before I introduce our speakers today, I would like to hand over to Professor Andreas Velasco, Dean of School of Public Policy, to say a few words. Andreas, please. Thank you very much, Bingxun. And hello, everyone. Welcome to this LSE event. I simply want to say on behalf of the School of Public Policy and on behalf of the London School of Economics, how delighted we are to be launching the LSE Fudan Public Policy Hub. This is a, an institution that has been long in the making, uh, and it is part, of course, of the ongoing uh, collaboration between these two great universities, one in China and one in the United Kingdom. It is a venture that was somewhat delayed by the pandemic, as so many other things in our lives, private and public, but it has finally gotten off the ground. And I think that is cause for celebration. We, we were delighted to welcome last September the first two LSE fellows um, who are conducting research on the LSE campus on the fifth floor of the center building at the LSE as part of this initiative. And of course, we very much hope this will be only the beginning of a collaboration, not only between Fudan and, and the LSE, but among scholars and researchers who are interested in all things having to do with China and China's role uh, in the world. 
This is an interdisciplinary center. It is not confined to any one narrow discipline, and it takes a fairly broad approach and a fairly broad definition to the kinds of issues that we hope to study. But the idea, of course, is to advance knowledge and to advance mutual understanding. And I have no doubt that the center will do all of that and more. So let me simply say again, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you to our distinguished speakers who are about to be uh, introduced. And I'm sure this will be the first of many events, some online, some on site, discussing the issues of the day. Have a great uh, panel, a great discussion. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. And Bing Chung, back to you. Thank you very much, Andreas. And now let me introduce our distinguished speakers today um, in the order, um, in the alphabetic order of their last names. Um, so first, we're going to have uh, Mr. Bill Bickels. Bill is a Harvard-trained economist whose work has focused primarily on economic and social developments in China and Mongolia, and whose most recent work on China's economic development is Reflections on Poverty Reduction in China, published by the Swiss Development Corporation. He served until late 2020 as the lead economist in the Office of the United Nations Resident Coordinator in China. Next, we have Professor Liu Xiaobo, who is an unwitting Oling Professor of Political Science in Barnard College, Columbia University. He is the founding director of Columbia Global Centers in Beijing. He's acting director and a former director of the Weatherhead East Asian Institute at Columbia University. Professor Liu teaches courses on Chinese politics, political economy, comparative political corruption, and its control and comparative politics. And thirdly, we have uh, Professor Ren Xuefei, who is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology of Michigan State University. Xuefei is a comparative urbanist whose work focuses on urban development, governance, architecture, and the built environment in global perspective. She is currently working on two new projects. The first project examines the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on urban governance in six countries, including China, the United States, Canada, Germany, Brazil, and South Africa. The second project compares culture-led revitalization in post-industrial cities with Detroit, Harbin, and Turin as case studies. Last but not least, we have Professor Winnie Yip, She's currently Professor of Global Health Policy and Economics in the Department of Global Health and Population at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, serves as the Faculty Director of the School-Wide school China Health Partnership, and recently completed her appointment as Acting Director of the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University. In addition to her academic appointment, Professor Yip is a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Track to Health Dialogue and is immediate past president um, and is immediate past president of the International Health Economics Association. So warm welcome to all of you and thank you very much for joining us. Now, um, let me start, if I may, with um, Professor Yip on an issue related to public health. Now, as the world enters the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic, we continue to witness the stark contrast between China and most de developed countries 
in their approach to handling the pandemic. Actually, just yesterday, the UK, UK Prime Minister announced the lift of all the COVID-related restrictions, including the um, regulation on self-isolation if you tested positive. So what do you think is the rationale <clears throat> or maybe potential pitfalls of China's zero COVID policy? What do you think are some of the longer-term impacts that the pandemic will have on the public health system of China? And what are some other challenges that China's health care system will confront in the near and medium run? Professor Yip, please. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, let me just uh, congratulate the um, launch of the LSE Global um, Fudan Global Public Health Collab uh, Policy Public Policy Collaboration. I think um, international collaboration at this time it is ever more important than any other time. That um, it needs to be further strengthened, enriched, um, and uh, developed. So um, I congratulate you. Um, so thank you for asking me to provide a few commentaries on China's COVID policy and its impact on the public health system and the broader um, health system that China is facing. Um, there's no question that COVID has taken center stage in terms of discussion, but I want to remind everyone that the healthcare system that China faces and the world faces is not just COVID. We're facing many, many other challenges that I really hope that COVID doesn't just take our attention away from these other challenges, and that include aging population and increased non-communicable disease pandemic, etc. Um, so. Before I make my comment about COVID, I want to remind everybody about one word and one condition that we're facing, and that is uncertainty. Despite the fact that we're in the third year of COVID, what we know about COVID is still very little. And the most uncertain thing about COVID is that it is so capable of mutation. We don't know whether Omicron is the last one. We don't know whether in a few months there will be another variant and how lethal, how transmissible it is. So I think most of our discussion really need to put that in context. And we can't really talk about policy and change with a whole certainty. And the other uncertainty is also we still don't know about the long-term effects of COVID what we call long COVID and, and therefore how to deal with it. And it is a situation that we're really learning how to do things while knowledge is being discovered. Um, so China is taking a very extreme policy, but if you look at um, how China is able to limit the number of uh, uh, infection, there's no question that China is doing very well compared to the rest of the world. The question is, can China continue to do this and what cause it is at? Um, in the case of China, China's strength is that it can effectively um, do mass mobilization. It effectively develop and launch digital technologies. Both of them are very, very essential for China to be able to contain COVID. But China also has a few weaknesses. Number one is that herd immunity in China is very low. 
And that's the cost of being able to control it. And if you look at Europe, you look at England, I think many of you, you are already reaching herd immunity. And so, so, so we have to take that into consideration. If I'm the leader of China, I will have to think about if I co-open China now, like, like England opened itself, what is the consequences? Number two is... Um, vaccines, we all know that the effect of the efficacy of the Chinese vaccine, um, the data is still a little bit unclear, especially the data in terms of its efficacy against Omicron, it is actually not as favorable. So that's the other factor that if I'm the leader, I would have to consider what might be the consequences. And in case if it is open completely um, and leading to a huge number of infection, can the health system really, really um, uh, face that? My sense is that um, the question is not whether China should follow many of its Western counterparts. The question is, can China relax from its current very strict COVID, zero COVID policy to something which is a bit moderated. And we're already seeing China is doing that because many of the lockdown is now by um, small area. And I'm sure you have read the news that just about two months ago, there's uh, widely circulated that Shanghai actually decentralized it to such a state that it is only one, um, one shop that sell bubble tea that is considered um, medium risk, all the shops around them, it is uh, not considered to be in any risk. So, so, so China is trying to find ways to do it. And I'm sure you will see great variation between Shanghai versus Xi'an that um, how, 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 how adaptive they are. So the question is not completely opening. The question is how much can it relax a bit and still allow it to really respond to large increase in cases. Um, but I'm actually quite positive in the following sense. <clears throat> what Wuhan revealed to us and to China is that China has a very, very good um, infectious disease reporting system. So the hardware is there. What falls apart is the governance structure. Because there's so many different levels and so many different departments within China that is responsible a little bit related to infectious disease control and response. So at the end, you really need, and this is really the classic demonstration of tell tell kwai kwai, right? You need multiple levels of the government and different parts of the government from the CDC to the health and then to the government to make decision. And the recent um, creation of the national administration of um, disease prevention is really an attempt to try to consolidate all the fragmented decision power to come to one organization. So I think that's a great improvement. The second thing that I think for China is also um, very positive is that China suffers much less in terms of foregone care during COVID. Now, partly because China was shut down much shorter time period, but partly was because policy-wise, it is opening the doors to immediately legitimize the existing internet health platform. They already exist, but was not scaling up as fast as one would like it to be. And China immediately wrote out a number of policy to allow internet-based healthcare to grow and expand. And that really helped take care of a lot of the non-emergent cases. And it is now continuing to grow. And um, I think that the challenge 
is actually for China is the trade-off between life and death and the economy. Despite the economy is growing, it's growing faster than the rest of the world. It is showing signs that it is really stagnating. That's going to be the hard decision on how much they open um, the economy and to international travel. Um, and um, I think I have run out of my time. Um, so I'm going to leave some of the other um, challenges for its healthcare system to the Q&A. Thank you very much. Thank you, Winnie, for keeping the time so well. Um, and also for thank you per, for providing the perfect segue to the next part of the, the panel discussion. Because at the beginning of your presentation, you reminded us not to uh, be too uh, be, be blinded by the COVID and, and then to also look beyond COVID. Um, and I think that's also, um, I'm sure that's also the, um, the, the case from the, the party elite's perspective when they think about the next step and their political agenda, if we, especially if we think about the upcoming uh, party Congress, um, I think later this, this, this year. Um, and speaking of longer term policy um, agenda, Last year, um, the Chinese government announced in quick succession as a, a series of new policies and regulations oriented toward building the quote-unquote common prosperity. Um, policies targeting digital platforms, financialization of real estate, um, private tutoring. Now, some of the commentators were saying that the reason why the regime chose to announce this policy at that particular time was because of the, the legitimacy that uh, the, the regime was able to bank um, because of the successful um, um, fight against the, the COVID. Um, so this question, next question I have is for um, Professor Liu, if I may. Um, because when last summer, when Chinese government announced those, those policies, while international media almost unanimously framed this as the so-called cracking down on private enterprise or tech firms, um, the new policies enjoy actually broad support domestically. Um, so, um, Professor Liu, what do you think are, um, you know, those who comment on Chinese politics um, and Chinese policies from the outside tend to miss or misunderstand? Well, uh, thank you, uh, Bing Chun. Um, thank you for inviting me to uh, share my thoughts and observations of uh, China's sort of a uh, COVID policy and its impact on, particularly on domestic politics and foreign relations. Um, I'm a political economist, so uh, obviously my attention is on the political impact of of the of the pandemic and its response. And to answer your to respond to your question specifically on the legitimacy, I think I'll pick up from there and then uh, make my remarks around several effects, if you will. Um, uh, of pandemic and it, uh, its response by the Chinese government on the uh, domestic politics and foreign relations of China. The first effect, in fact, is related to your question that is on legitimacy. I think your, your observation is quite correct that because the initial success in the last couple of years and in the, you know, the, uh, the response and the COVID, uh, zero COVID policy, and so on, using uh, contact tracing, mass testing, as isolation, quarantine, and even lockdown methods uh, to, to really keep 
the uh, the COVID virus infection at bay uh, to some extent. Uh, only some uh, uh, you know uh, uh, local outbreaks in the last few years, but there was never a kind of wave, if will, after the first initial wave in Wuhan. Now, the first effect, I think, in terms of, uh, my, according to my observation, is what I can call a crisis unifying effect. This is uh, not unique of China in, in a time of crisis, because usually in time of crisis like war, like, uh, you know, like pandemic, that society tend to have a rallying, rallying kind of, a, you know, to the, to the government policies, especially when it perceived as a right policy. At least I think in the early stage up to this point, and I'll talk about the next step, uh, I think as, as uh, Winnie talked about sort of the, the, the kind of current challenge of China facing, but so far that the, with the control, successful control of the large scale pandemic outbreak in China, I think there's a general kind of um, acceptance and trust in government's policy, right? So that enhances the legitimacy. Interestingly, that kind of a unifying uh, uh, effect has given as certain policymakers, uh, as certain policies, a much easier time, such as this regulating, you know, this uh, uh, this uh, sort of a, uh, cracking down on the, uh, you know, uh, capitalist, capitalist running amok kind of problems, if you will. Um, so that I think, plus the fact that China already has some technical surveillance ability makes this kind of a, you know, people's concern. In, you know, a couple of years ago, Chinese society do have, there are some people be concerned with this, you know, uh, the privacy issues, even though not as, as strong as in, uh, you know, uh, uh, Western societies over this technology, you know, advancement in terms of AI, in terms of, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, cell phone data and so on. So, but this using this kind of technology to surveil a, a, a pandemic, a disease control, and that have a similarly kind of enhanced this acceptance of this kind of a surveillance, if you will, even in a broader sense. Second effect, I think, is what I call a politicization effect of the of the pandemic and its response. Um, it started uh, very long, you know, quite, a, you know, in the very beginning with this investigation and tracing of the origins of the disease outbreak origins, right? That was, you know, the pressure from United States and outside to well, sort of politicize this issue by Trump. And then, of course, the Chinese innate reaction is, of course, if you, know, if you politicize it, I'm going to politicize it differently. And that, that began a kind of a downward uh, 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 spiral. And in fact, starting with that, there are more and more steps you can see that response of, uh, to a disease, to, to a public health crisis becoming more and more politicized. And that has you know, many examples one could see from that. Uh, one is, I would say, on, on the use of Chinese traditional medicine, zhong yao, right? And that obviously has a political impact that, uh, you know, they insist that it works. No matter how much, how le lack of scientific evidence, but that still because there's certain um, political support uh, on traditional Chinese medicine. So Chinese medicine is now regarded as a part of the two kid in China as a response. Another example is so-called Wu Chuan Ren, sort of whether there is a possible, you know, whether the uh, the the surface 
virus on the surface would actually infect, you know, infected person. And that's how obviously imported goods in the beginning was in the so-called cold chain, uh, uh, seafood. And then of course, moving from cold chain to a regular under, you know, regular, uh, 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 you know, metal import or, or puzzle from international. So, so that obviously is that emphasized on that is because partly because you have a COVID, uh, zero COVID policy. That means that domestically they should not and could not have originated a new kind of a, origin of infection, it has to be from outside. And then from outside, how could it come in, right? Because China has already the most restrictive, you know, entrance policy and how that virus could enter, right? Either through, you know, obviously if not person must be something on, 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 a, on a surface. And finally, another example of this politicization effect is that you see now, especially in the last year and a half, fewer and fewer voices from scientists, Chinese scientists. The specialists are now really, in the beginning, you do see them speaking out about the, the you know, how the response, what, you know, really communicate with the public on behalf of the government on vaccination, on, you know, different kind of pandemic issues. So, that's very necessary and, and, and indeed very much of a, a needed. Yet now you feel you can see that voices become weaker and fewer uh, uh, and fewer. So that I think is also part of that politicization effect of this uh, uh, of the pandemic. Now on foreign relations, what I would uh, call that the effect is isolation effect. You know, now the zero, uh, the strict disease control measures, particularly in, preventing the, the infections of the virus coming from abroad, which is obviously quite severe overseas for the last two years. So China, while you know, keeping domestic kind of society open, obviously at the border, it kept a very strict inter international travel uh, uh, restriction policy. So much so that in fact, despite the high economic growth in, in, in I'm sure, uh, Bill was going to talk about is last year was 8.1% increase in GDP, which is quite, uh, quite, uh, you know, uh, admirable. 2020 is 2.3%. It's a smaller, but you have to consider almost all countries in the world had a minor increase. So China achieved both in the last two years, a positive increase and last year was uh, very high. So the, you know, behind the numbers, you do see some sectors are hurt a lot are hurt a lot, a lot more, including that of civil aviation, Minhang. International travel, one example, this is I just saw a recent number to give you to illustrate my point, is that in the last month of, uh, in the month of January, ordinarily 2019, China's, uh, that in one week would have 10,000 flights, scheduled flights in, in, you know, in, in January, one week, weekly would be 10,000. China's international flights. This past month, this past January, one week, same week in 2022, guess how many uh, scheduled flights, international flights, 500. So you could see that while international uh, 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 civil aviation airlines kind of bounce back in the, you know, in the last year and a half or so, China's international uh, travel is still very much down. And that of course, add to that isolation effect in a metaphorically speaking, is that China seems to be further away from the rest of the world by, in fact, creating that bubble, 
you know, that bubble, I'm sure when you're going to talk about that, there's a challenges for that bubble. But suffice to say, in my, uh, from my point of view, that I feel that a lot of measures too, it's further away from the world, uh, it, you know, the disease control measures. While Britain, United States, you know, Israel, and Australia today just opened up for international travel. China has none of that even in the horizon. So nobody knows, uncertainty, as Winnie pointed out, we don't know. So that I think has a, a serious effect on the China kind of further away, you, I, you know, really metaphysically that, that kind of a, you know, physically too, of course, but also metaphysically that China seems to be further away from that. That sort of is isolation effect. And I, let me just finally make a one, uh, use one example to illustrate that effect, right? That kind of a isolation effect is this, uh, you know, just ended the, uh, the uh, Beijing Olympics, right? The Winter Olympics. One thing you notice that I, or I notice is that a lot of international media uh, sent reporters to carry, to cover the, the, uh, the, the, the Olympics. Obviously, China is quite open in that because they create a bubble. So it's very easy to get the visa to get to that. So but then if you want to cover Olympics, then you have to go into the bubble so that you can't go out. So you can leave, you can really left that leave the, the bubble. Now, what's also interesting is some of the major uh, media outlets, including BBC, CNN, NBC, they already have some journalists in Beijing, even though as small as they are now, of course, a very small presence. You know, poor Steve uh, Steve McDonald of BBC is the one that's uh, covered sort of a China special, a China correspondent, but he wasn't he wasn't sent in to cover uh, uh, the Olympic inside bubble, so he's outside the bubble. And uh, CN too, CN has a David. Oh, I think uh, you know he's a regular Beijing correspondent, but they sent uh, Selena Wang, a Chinese American student who I think was born in Beijing, yeah. journalist who now is a Tokyo correspondent, she went to Beijing. She was sent to cover inside the, the Olympics. So you see that, you know, kind of the fence, literally that's the how, how they, so it's very strange. And what's also amazing to me is how NBC covers this. NBC is the US, you know, network that has the exclusive right to cover that. But NBC has its regular Beijing correspondent. I think a, a, na a name is, her name is Jenny McKee Fryer. And she's a Canadian na uh, national, obviously, but she's been there since I think before, just before she arrived, just before the the lockdown of uh, of, uh, of uh, you know 2020. So she's been there two more two plus years, but rarely she reported out of it. So the very few reporting from her was actually shown in in NBC. I don't know what the reason behind it, but what's also interesting, noticeable, is that. NBC leading up to, to, to the covering Beijing event, uh, Olympic, they aired a couple of, you know, uh, of uh, reporting from another correspondent, an international correspondent, a British national uh, named is Keir uh, uh, Simmons, Keir Simmons, who is NBC's chief international correspondent. She actually covered a lot of China or, you know, on Xinjiang and other issues without being there. So you have a strange phenomenon where the China correspondent doesn't really, you know, reporting from, uh, do not report from China directly. You have the international correspondent covers China from farther away. So that creates a kind of, a, you know, who to believe, right? Who Who is that to believe? So that is partly, you know, I don't want to get into details of who were to blame for that, but that effect, it's, it's further enhanced.
with this pandemic uh, situation. So let me end by saying that uh, there's, of course, a lot of challenges laying, high, laying, lying ahead, and uh, we don't know when uh, and how China's sort of post, uh, uh, you know, the exit strategy would be uh, because of this, you know, this kind of, a, again, this, this, you know, two kind of a further, the distance between what happened in the world in terms of pandemic and, and disease control measures and China. So that that created some sort of uncertainty. Um, I'll, I'll be uh, you know, happy to discuss that uh, in further question and answers. Thank you very much. Thank you, Xiaobo. <clears throat> I would love to continue the conversation with you about the international media coverage. Um, although I think we need to um, move on. Now, speaking of legitimacy, um, my next question is for uh, Bill, if I may. Now, um, common prosperity became a new policy catchphrase at the moment when um, the nationwide victory and triumph was declared over poverty um, eradication or the eradication of extreme poverty. Um, if, if you watch the last year's uh, the, the, the uh, Spring Festival Gala, there was a lot of, you know, um, display and a performance around that particular thing. So obviously, this this victory also adds adds further to the legitimacy of of the regime. Now, Bill, you have had extensive experience working on rural development projects in in China. Um, what do you think are the, you know, maybe two or three most important things we need to understand about Chinese government poverty alleviation? Um, campaign and and obviously it's not just put poverty in rural area although the 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 focus about eradicating extreme uh, poverty was very much focused on the rural area but as we also know as inequality grow um, there's also the issue of urban um, poverty so Bill thank you thank you Bing Chun and I'd like to add my congratulations to you to LSE and Fudan on this initiative uh, I agree 100 percent that there's a need for more collaboration now, not less, and two outstanding uh, educational institutions joining together in, uh, in an initiative like this is really is really great news. So best best wishes and in, in, in your new initiative. So uh, I will talk probably less about COVID than the other panelists. Uh, I'm as for your question, Bing Chuan, I'm, I'm looking more at uh, the implications, the lessons, and the, the lack of lessons in some areas from this poverty eradication effort uh, for the new common prosperity agenda. So as you say, the, the China's declaration of triumph in its war to eradicate poverty caught the attention of the whole world. Now I've done research and I've raised some questions about whether that claim that poverty has been completely eradicated is quite right, but there is no question that in the last years, there has been a great improvement in the living standards of tens of millions of the poorest Chinese people in the most remote rural areas through that effort. However, uh, uh, there, as I say, uh, when we look at the implications for uh, the common prosperity agenda for the next phase of China's social development, there are many ways in which it's important to see parts of what's been done that are not necessarily applicable or need to be 
revised in substantial ways as China moves ahead now. We do want to note, I, I remember at the time, how remarkable it was when Xi Jinping made poverty eradication, as he defined it, the key criterion for assessing whether China had achieved this long-standing goal of the all-around Xiaokang society, and, and therefore was ready to move on to the next phase of development. I think many of you will remember that before that, the focus on achieving Xiaokang goals was always GDP. Double GDP, double again, double again, was, it was always GDP focused, changing that it really became the key criterion. We will achieve Xiaokang society. We will eradicate extreme income poverty. And that will be the, the key criterion for assessing that. That was quite remarkable. And uh, from my point of view, quite to be applauded. However, looking ahead now, we do need to note that the Chinese poverty line that has been applied is a very low one. It's only slightly higher than the global $1.90 a day line that was created to track the number of extreme poor and low income countries. China's current line is renminbi 2300 per year in 2010 prices adjusted every year for inflation. That's over 10 years old. That was set in 2011. It was, it was I would say, a reasonable line to use to mark the end of Xiaokang era. But now China is on the cusp of, be, of being classified as an upper income country by World Bank methodology. And China has announced that it's achieved its Xiaokang goals and is moving to new ones. And at this time, there is clearly a need for a new poverty standard. It could be another absolute income line like the current one, but just much higher. The World Bank suggests $5.50 a day purchasing power parity terms line for upper middle income countries, for upper income countries even higher. Or it could be a relative income line as is used in the EU and in many countries that might be particularly interesting in China, given the emphasis that's being placed now on shrinking inequality. It could be multidimensional also, capturing access to healthcare, education, housing, and so on. So we do note that to date, China has not taken this necessary step of adjusting the poverty line. And there seems to be an implication that, that, that somehow poverty just no longer exists in China. But that's not, in, that's not consistent with global practices. Poverty is a problem in every country, including the most advanced. And I think it's hard to deny that it's still a problem in China. What's needed is a new definition of poverty suitable for China's current stage of development and for the new 2035 goals. Second, uh, Bing Chun, you noted, and this is really very important, China still defines poverty solely as a rural phenomenon. In the 2020 census, 63% of the population were classified as urban on a residence basis, but there's still no official definition of, there's no acknowledgement of, there's no program to address urban poverty. And as far as I know, that's unique in the world. Uh, the global experience is as countries develop, they urbanize. And as population urbanizes, poverty also urbanizes. Uh, and to mention a COVID-19 example, uh, quite relevant here, 
when COVID-19 burst out in China in the beginning of 2020, it, its harshest economic impact was felt not in rural areas, but in urban areas, and in particular on the incomes of on the incomes of urban, informal, and gig economy employees. Many of them were migrant workers, but not all. When in early 2020, the Chinese government declared that COVID would not prevent the achievement of the goal of eradicating poverty by the end of the year. And in November, when it announced that the goal had been achieved, those vulnerable urban population groups were simply not included in any of that discussion. They were not counted among China's poor in the first place. The impact of COVID on their incomes and poverty were not tracked nearly as closely. Uh, that's a good indication of how, as China moves forward now, there's a need to move beyond this urban-rural distinction. This is really just a pure legacy of the planned economy era when there was so little population mobility. And define what urban poverty is, monitor it, and strengthen programs to reduce it. And I would add, it, in my view, it also will require abolishing, not just tinkering with, but abolishing the hukou system, because it's for, to me, it seems it's hard to see how common prosperity can be a, a meaningful goal if the hukou system continues to divide China's population into two groups with such different access to services, to opportunities, and to better lives. Lastly, uh, poverty eradication effort was organized really as a campaign. This massive financial and human resources were mobilized from the budget, from government agencies, local governments, the army, private companies, schools, everyone was brought into this. And there was a clearly listed set of target households, villages, and counties that were identified in the beginning of the effort in 2014, 2015. So this campaign style approach led to very impressive results, but it's only suitable for sort of a time limited set of goals. You say by the end of 2020, these 90 million households will be lifted out of poverty. Uh, it does not, it did not, and it cannot, I would say, address underlying structural problems that drive poverty in China as in other countries. I've already mentioned one of them, and that's the urban-rural divide. Another example of a structural driver of poverty is gender inequality uh, as a result of persistent gender gaps in wages and workforce participation and in legal command over financial and other assets. In China today, women enter old age earlier than men with far weaker financial security than men, and then they live longer than men. So the problem of poor elderly women, particularly in rural areas, is going to intensify steadily in the coming years unless strong steps are taken to address it. And at the same time, we've all seen that there is a lot of attention now to population aging and to the, the, the decline in China's uh, fertility rates. And that seems to be leading to an even greater emphasis on women's role as sort of in reproduction rather than in production. And it promises to make gender inequality an even more serious problem.
Another structural problem is that the fiscal system, the budget, which in many countries plays an important role in redistributing income from wealthier to poorer households and regions, and China doesn't play that role very well. China's revenues are highly dependent on a regressive tax, the value-added tax. The role of a progressive personal income tax, which really is central in that redistribution function, is is quite is remarkably small in China. The share of China's revenues that come from personal income tax is one of the very lowest in the world. Now, recently, there's been exploration of of introducing property taxes as a way, it said, to reduce inequality, to make the budget more progressive. And that's a good step, but property taxes normally go just to local budgets, and therefore they have limited effect on national inequality levels. So, and lastly, and vitally in terms of of ongoing and a sustainable poverty alleviation agenda, this campaign style approach achieved those short-term results but what is really needed is robust, universal social protection systems. Again, this is a very clear global experience. Social protection systems, including adequate pensions for the aging population, unemployment insurance, and medical insurance that includes gig economy and informal economy workers, uh, social assistance, and, and so on. When I say universal, the point is that there can't be large excluded groups such as the informal sector, such as the rural hukou population. So uh, to briefly sum up then, the campaign to eradicate extreme income poverty in China by 2020 was historic and achieved remarkable improvements in living standards in the poorest rural areas. But we should be cautious about taking it as a model for the new common prosperity agenda and how it's to be achieved. You need a new poverty line, a more ambitious one, suitable for an upper income country or nearly upper, soon to be upper income country. You have to address urban poverty and you need uh, no longer a campaign style approach. And there've been some signs and some of the targeting of high income individuals and some of the uh, steps taken to crack down on large private firms, some signs that it's still sort of a campaign approach, targets specific groups and so on. But what's really needed now are efforts to address the structural drivers of poverty, HUCO system, gender inequalities, the fiscal system, and the lack of adequate and universal social protection systems. Well, I'll stop there. Thank you. And uh, I look forward to discussion and to questions and answers. Thank you, Bill, for your astute analysis that allow us to see a lot of those very important issues uh, that are often um, being concealed by the triumphant narrative put forward by by the state. And also thank you for reminding us of the issue of urban poverty, which also leads us to um, the next part of the discussion. Um, As a country that has uh, gone through urbanization in the past few decades on a huge scale with extraordinary speed, 
Um, my next question is for um, Xue Fei. So um, as an urbanist, what do you think are the biggest challenges for China now in terms of urban governance? Um, and also similar to what I asked Winnie um, earlier, what do you think are some of the longer term impacts the pandemic could have on urban governance in China? So Xue Fei. Okay, thank you, Bingchun, for the two very big questions. <laughs> and also thank you for organizing the panel. Uh, as for challenges, I think one of the biggest challenges um, in terms of urban governance in China today is the fact that cities have become too powerful. Uh, by cities, what I mean is municipal governments. So municipal governments have become too powerful and then they also need to take care of uh, too many responsibilities, which uh, actually they can't afford. They don't have the fiscal revenue to, um, uh, to do that. Um, and that's not new. That has been the pattern since the 1990s um, when uh, the central government decided to uh, devolve more power to the localities. So it's the same pattern over the last 30 years. In the short run, um, as um, all three previous speakers have mentioned, in the short run, um, it's, it can be very effective. So cities can accomplish a lot. Um, reduce poverty, um, improve healthcare system, and achieve even zero COVID. Uh, so it's effective in the short run. But in the long run, it's not sustainable because uh, cities um, need to uh, share uh, both responsibilities, also power with other levels of uh, the government, both the national, provincial, and also the sub-national uh, level, by which I mean villages, towns, townships, and even counties. So it's not a good thing if cities and local governments become too uh, uh, powerful. Um, <clears throat> so what are the consequences? At the very local level, the decision-making is very centralized. So um, it ha things happen fast, but um, cities and local governments can also make mistakes. Uh, there are no checks and balances because they are the major players in the room. And um, at the national level, um, it leads to um, 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 a tremendous, a very high level of regional disparity. The gap between cities like Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, the top four China's superstar cities and the rest of the country is already big. And that gap is further widening. So um, on the one hand, you have cities led by very ambitious and quite capable local officials, and they can do amazing things, but only within their jurisdictions, because they don't need to care about what happens in other cities or other regions. Their promotion is not dependent on things happening in other parts of the country. Um, so, um, so at the national level, um, I see, the, um, I think the the degree or the level, the extent of regional dis disparity is, um, uh, is increasing as a result of uh, having really um, uh, powerful municipal governments. Um, and for the second part of your question, the impact of the pandemic on urban governance. So here I tend to agree with the Professor Liu, um, you mentioned that um, even before the pandemic, um, there was already a quite strong authoritarian impulse of controlling <laughs> things. And now with the pandemic during the last two years, um, the, 
the state, uh, both at the national local level, is also has the legitimacy to use those tools, digital tools, AI or big data to uh, track down the infected uh, to achieve a zero COVID. So for the last more than last two years, two years and two months, I think that uh, authoritarian or territorial impulse uh, in the um, uh, among the local authorities has further strengthened. And um, I don't think uh, it's going to end with the pandemic. As the pandemic becomes endemic, probably um, um, the Chinese government at both national and local level will continue use the tools to uh, uh, control um, or uh, to um, watch <laughs> people's everyday life because they can't do it. Uh, they have the technical capability to, uh, to get the information and then use the information to do things uh, far beyond pandemic control. So I think that's one of the major impact of uh, COVID-19 on urban governance. And um, um, I want to end with a positive note. I think it's not inevitable. <laughs> there are solutions to uh, counterbalance uh, the super powerful cities. So one easy fix um, is actually, it's not easy in other countries, but in China, it can be done very fast. So um, if the central government can introduce some incentive uh, when they evaluate local officials to encourage cities and regions to collaborate, then, um, then uh, it can lead to real changes. For now, the local officials are promoted on the basis of uh, economic performance, environmental protection, and also COVID control. If they can add um, another category, for example, cross-regional collaboration, um, collaboration between a major city and the surrounding rural uh, counties, rural villages, uh, then uh, it can really encourage uh, local officials to uh, um, um, to um, look outward instead of having a tunnel vision focusing only on their territory, <laughs> their turf. So it can uh, encourage them to uh, uh, do uh, things they haven't tried before. Um, and uh, at the general uh, level, I think um, it's uh, China has reached the state where uh, 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 the cities um, are too powerful for their own good, and they somehow they do need to share <laughs> power with other stakeholders, such as the private sector, citizens, civil society groups, and also other levels of the government, from the national to uh, the village level. So um, I will stop here and uh, look forward to <laughs> the Q&A. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you so much, Xuefei. Um, well, after having listened to your presentations, one sort of common thread I um, discovered rather unexpectedly um, is this, uh, what the, the phrase that Bill used is this campaign style um, policy making and the policy implementation. 
Um, I guess to a large extent, China's success in fighting the pandemic um, also lies in its capacity to very quickly mobilize and to wage a campaign also against um, the, the, the pandemic. And I guess this is also related to what Xiaobo was saying earlier about how this whole issue now has become um, highly politicized. So to what extent, I, I guess my question is, is for um, all of you um, and, and whoever wants to, to, to comment, I guess there are two parts here. The first part is to what extent um, China has become the victim of its own um, success. That also reflecting on what Winnie was saying earlier, that to what extent China has now worked itself into a corner now as the rest of the world opening up and China finding itself very low on herd immunity and also finding because everything is so politicized, so it's becoming more difficult now to in a way de-escalate the campaign. Um, and then the second part of the question is following up on this. Um, so, and I, I also very much want to pick on what Xue Fei said um, about um, having some you know, hope or, or, or um, optimism. So where do you see this, maybe the de-escalation of campaign? Um, you know, where, where, where is the potential for that? Where is the possibility for that? And Bill, I, I, you, you mentioned that there are some recent attempts, attempts trying to address the, the structural issues rather than just looking at you know, the, the growing inequality just as a political um, campaign. So um, any of you want to comment on that? If I may, uh, I think China right now is in a stage where, you know, we're using, if we can use a Chinese phrase to describe it, it's called qihu nanxia. So uh, I guess it's a direct translation is you're on a tiger's back. You know, this is a year of tiger. And when you're on the tiger's back, it's not necessarily a good thing because, yeah, you're okay. He can bite you. The bite tiger won't bite you. But how'd you get down? And that's the unwinding or the exit strategy. I think it's going to be very challenging. I, in order to directly answer that, I, but I would think there are several aspects of how this, you know, public policy, the excess strategy has to be made to be considered. Number one, you know, in social science, we know something is called past dependency. You know, it locked in. It is certain where you came from depends on you, how you're going to go because that, that with the, the past strategy would inevitably affect your new strategy. I think that's number one for public policy makers to think about. Secondly, framing is crucial. I think this is related to Professor Meng and, and others on, on communications is that framing is crucial. I think the framing right now is very weak because the government seemed to have, you know, kind of a not, not really directly communicate, you know, as actively as should be because it, frame it to what, you know, to the way that to make it for this, you know, eventually unwinding or getting on, getting down from that tiger's back, that framing of the issue about the virus, about the pandemic situation, why it becomes, why other countries are now regarding it as endemic, even the word Chinese is going to be hard to, to use those pandemic, endemic, which is originally from, a, you know, from a Latin uh, roots. And that even in Chinese, a lot of those even terminology is very new right now, you know, yesterday or two days ago, China decided to have this so-called, um, you know, mix and match to have the third uh, uh, booster to use a different kind of, you know, uh, 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 vaccine. 
And now they use a very scientific term. I think I forgot. Uh, when you reminds me of that term, what was it called now? Something called But I was just like, why you use this so such a you know a technical term to describe it? Just called Hunda. Chinese are all understand Hunda. You know, okay, you, you have two and you use this third one. And that's very easy to understand. Why you all of a sudden the CD Chinese CDC now use this very scientific term to to lay out for the policy, but the way to frame it is because, look, vaccination is a mass, it really touches on everyone. So you have to use the language that everyone is. So framing. Finally, you need to, I think it's also the trust is not unlimited. You know, as we all know from other country experience, now the people have so-called fatigue. Canada, for God's sake, now had a different, you know, even had protest. Therefore, Americans, that's, a, that's kind of like shock. Right, Can Canadians even now getting all this kind of a rile up about the vaccination mandates and so on. So China, yes, so far so good. People put a lot of trust, you know, rally around the flag, unifying. But there's always that challenge of that trust going to win. And I already see from social media that kind of trust began to that fatigue began to kick in. So that also I think is something that policymakers has to really to be aware of. Yes, Wayne, please. Um, this is a very interesting discussion because um, COVID um, on its own is the disease and it has a lot of scientific aspect, but then now obviously it has been uh, becoming a more political and economic and social um, issue. Um, I want to go back to this term, um, this idea of legitimacy. Um, would you agree that um, the Chinese government's legitimacy in the past 20, 30 years is really thriving on economic growth and prosperity. I felt that um, in my mind, the greatest challenge is can China continue to give its people the economic growth that they have been used to? That expectation, right? Um, I mean, in policy, there is part dependency. In human being, there's also past expectation that formulate our future expectation. And, and I felt that um, getting vaccine and all that, that actually is not going to be difficult to achieve in China, given past history and how people behave, if they continue to enjoy economic growth. I think once that's not available, everything else is going to be manifested. I just want to throw that out as a hypothesis to see how other colleagues would respond to that. And I feel that this coming down of the tiger back, um, I'm sure most of you know that when you talk to colleagues in China, that's why most people think that China won't change much until after the 20th Congress, so that it can have some room for mistake. Before that, there's no room for expectation or for mistake. Um, so, so maybe that is where the watershed is. Then the question is between now and then, right? Earlier, people feel that the Winter Olympic is a good argument. But between now and that 20th Congress, can China hold on for that long? And would the economy allow it to continue to make people feel, I'm okay to be with you? <laughs> 
until next year. I just want to raise this essay as a thought for see how my uh, learned colleagues think about it. Yes, Bill? <laughs> well, if, if I jump in. Yeah, go uh, ahead, please. I, what you say is, I think, captures accurately the way things have been. Uh, in terms of legitimacy being based so much in economic progress and economic growth. That scares me very much. I mean, because I, I don't think there's much doubt among economists that there is now a contradiction between, I, I mean, the, the party recognizes so clearly when they said shifting from rapid economic growth to high quality development. I mean, right. that really is needed. Right. Strong economic growth is not sustainable at this point. Right. There's, there's too much dependence on capital investment. There's too much dependence on infrastructure, on big projects, on, right. on capital intensive. Uh, sectors rather than labor intensive ones that will really raise the living standards of more people. And right. if China chooses in the short term to continue to look at that GDP growth number as the right. key, uh, as much as they love to, uh, that's going to make it even harder to achieve the very laudable goals of what the common prosperity is supposed to right. be uh, embodying. Uh, you know, this Qi Hu Nanxia concept, there's, uh, having lived in China through COVID, I mean, I was there for all of 2020 and, and most of 2021. I think we all remember there was that moment early on when the party's legitimacy seemed to be Threatened. shaky. Yeah. When the, those first mistakes in Wuhan, the which now... I think the Li Wenliang case yes. was the... Oh, and the fact that that famous big uh, outdoor party that the Wuhan government organized oh, when the disease was spreading rapidly already. The fact that people were still allowed to leave Wuhan and travel all over the country, even when everyone knew how they were so reluctant to acknowledge the problem. I have to say right here that the, the problems, the mistakes that Chinese policymakers made at that point were in no way worse than the mistakes we've seen in every country around the world in the meantime. There's more perspective on that now. The U.S. mistakes, my goodness, and, and some uh, mistakes in so many other countries. Nevertheless, China's ability to intervene at that point, to turn that around by mobilizing, by that campaign approach, surely has made a deep impression on the leadership of the party right now. Yeah. They said we were able, because of the strengths of our, our system, we were able to turn that around just like that. And within a, a short period of time, be able to claim uh, success and triumph. And uh, that's quite remarkable. And that makes it even harder for them to think about really serious changes in approach. And there's an analogy, which I won't go into detail on, in the poverty question too. Right? Since there's reluctance now to admit that, yes, we achieved something great, but no, we haven't eliminated poverty. How can any country eliminate poverty? You, as you get richer, you, you, I mean, poor people in America that are classified as poor by US standard would be considered you know, wealthy in China and just simply in terms of income. 
Um, as you become an upper income country, you simply need to redefine what poverty is. But before this, before 2021, by the end of 2020, in, in the lead up to the formulation of the, the 14th five-year plan, there was so much discussion about relative poverty lines, about urban poverty, about the, but in, that's all been set aside for now. And I'm hoping it, it will be brought back maybe after the 20th Congress as uh, was suggested, because it's obviously uh, those are necessary steps to take. So. I just want to quickly uh, respond to Winnie's question specifically about the timeline of uh, reopening. It's very interesting that uh, you mentioned about the party Congress, which is, uh, I think, a time uh, slotted, uh, I think, in, November, uh, in October, late October. I actually be more, even as a political scientist, a student of Chinese politics, I actually don't think that that is a factor that much of, it is a factor, but it's not going to be a decisive factor. But, I mean, this is out of political scientists, but, you know, obviously it's a surprise, but I actually think that between now and then there are a lot, a lot more depends on the, you know, on, on the, on the pandemic situation, you know, beyond China, you know, nearby and beyond China. The reason I'm saying this, you can see that a lot of this really is a public policy issue right now. It's a challenging, as you said, it's really kind of created by its own success that, you know, what about uh, vaccination? What about booster? You know, how do you want it, uh, you know, where they allow the uh, mRNA, you know, Pfizer and, and uh, you know, Pfizer probably most likely one, why should China continue to not to approve that or, or when to prove that? Drugs already now being, you know, approved, the drug, uh, the antiviral drug is being approved. That's an interesting sign because obviously China's, Chinese leader realize you cannot, you know, close forever while other countries begin to change so fast. You know, it's not as really fast. You know, we're talking about weeks, not months. So in that sense, we have so many months left. I think that could be, you know, China could uh, could reopen slightly, ever slightly, that do that. But also what's also interesting is there is no timeline. The, the thing is, unlike in the West, right, you sometime announce it several months ahead. China really rarely do that. You know, they seem to be really kind of go back, you know, kind of like on the go, if, if you will. There's no timeline even announced. And I don't think we can expect that. But uh, I personally think that the party Congress, the political events, as important it is, may not necessarily put too much. It would have some impact, but it wouldn't be too much in, in the, you know, reconsideration, lifting restriction and changing its, its uh, COVID policy. Thank you, Xiaobo. Um, I, I think we, um, as much as I want to continue our conversation, but um, there are um, already a steady stream of questions um, in the Q&A box. I think we do need to move on. Um, but I really want to thank uh, Bill, Xiaobo, Xiefei, and, and Winnie for a, a great panel discussion. And now we open the floor to questions from the audience. There are already more than 20 questions in the chat box. So I'm gonna exercise my chair's privilege and select um, the questions for our panelists. So the first one um, is from Yixi Zhang, who is a research fellow in our newly established center. And her question is for um, Professor Yip. Um, she says, uh, one lesson regarding countries' lack of preparedness for COVID was the governing system of two health objectives 
chronic non-communicable disease and the communicable ones are fragmented. Could you share insights for China and other middle-income countries who are pushing hard to improve the level of universal health coverage while coping with population aging? How can they create a more integrated health system that is more prepared for the next pandemic? Well, thank you um, uh, for the question. It uh, gives me the opportunity to talk a little bit about um, the China's um, other challenges and uh, its healthcare system. I think what COVID has shown China is that it has a relatively weak public health system, public health in the traditional sense of public health that focuses on population health, that focuses on prevention. And um, in the last 20 years, China has invested significantly into its healthcare system. In fact, in real terms, China's spending in health in between 2007 and 2017 is quadruple. I mean, you don't see in any other country in the world in that kind of magnitude, but a lot of them actually go into acute care. A lot of them go into hospital care. And I think one challenge that China is facing now, which the government already recognized, is how do you turn that around in terms of resource allocation, shifting from going into acute care, hospital down to primary care, in terms of human resource, how do you build primary health care? Unlike in England, which is very primary health care based, China is very tertiary hospital based. And you saw that in the Wuhan situation. When COVID first broke out, everybody go to the hospital. And in fact, the initial waves of infection is exactly through the hospitals. And so China actually has already achieve, I would say, universal insurance coverage. But what is problematic is that, and the challenge is, no matter how much money China mobilizes, and that's a common lesson for many other countries, no matter how much money is being mobilized, whether it can get to good health depends very much on the delivery system. And the delivery system right now is too weak at the bottom level. At the primary care level, people don't trust the primary care provider. And you notice that during COVID, the primary health care provider is actually not a main force in that work. They're really mobilizing the masses, the neighborhood, <laughs> right? It's Jue, Hui, and all those get mobilized. And the other challenge is that the public health system, which is usually run by the Center for Disease Control, CDC, and the medical care system, they're two separate systems. They're fragmented. At certain level, they need to be talking to each, uh, each other and working as one system. What you have seen in the last few months is that the public health people come out and say, we need more money, we need more people. The medical care system say that we also need more. But I think what is needed is that somehow an integration between those two and then get the resource to be really doing population health and prevention. And that's hard because right now, from a self-interest perspective, the system is dominated by hospitals. And you know how difficult it is to reform a system when you're going to change it to a better system, but that is going to hurt the interests of those who are most powerful now, and that's the hospital. So, 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 um, and since the question is also not just asking about China, it's also asking about other middle and income country, it's a common problem, unfortunately. 
the last 20, 30 years has focused too much on acute care, curative care, but whether it is infectious disease or non-communicable disease, I don't think that's where the contradiction is. The contradiction is because for both types of them, you want to have better prevention and primary care. The contradiction right now is hospital acute care and the bottom level. Thank you very much, Winnie. Um, and the next question is from um, the other research fellow in the center, um, Yan Wang. Um, and her question is mainly addressed to uh, Professor Liu. The UK just announced its plan for living with COVID, comparing the decision-making of the UK and China during the pandemic. What could we learn about the role of public health experts and the balance between a political decision and the public health decision? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. So uh, I think uh, the concept. So first of all, I, I emphasize several times about framing. You know, the messaging is so important. Not just in China, you can see that this throughout the pandemic in all countries, how government framed the problem and how uh, CDC and the experts and scientists message with the public is so crucial. And that is true in China too. So far, the concept of leaving with COVID. It's, it's simply, it's like hot potato. It's like the, you know, the, obviously the scientists are trying to raise this uh, scientists like uh, Zhang Wenhong, who are you know, from Shanghai, obviously is a new Zhongnanshan, who Zhongnanshan obviously kind of a, uh, he's, uh, he's kind of a, a credential, it, it's credibility is not as, as, as strong as Zhang Wenhong, but Zhang Wenhong also, you know, even among those, uh, scientists, they're politi being politicized as being ideologically had to choose sides. So anyway, that aside, so you have a free, even for scientists like Zhang who try to interpret what live with COVID means or, or the virus means, but then people refuse because again, this is past policy. The success has been completely make it the zero. How can, you know, China say, if it's possible to keep it zero, how can we live with it? So to, the, to today, to literally to today, you can see that people won't accept that. So that's a huge, huge, huge challenge for Chinese policymakers. How to, even the policy, policy is going to be one thing, but how do you frame it and make people accept it? It's going to be more challenging. So public opinion wise and the trust, because all depend on that framing. So the challenge is unique, but it's not that unique because we know elsewhere that fatigue, that's kind of, you know, the public is distrust of government policy and lack of consistent messaging from CDC, country CDC and expert, that all makes it, the, but because China doesn't have a vibrant debate, there isn't have a, you know, among the scientists. So that, you know, again, there's certain lack of kind of message. People not used to the kind of knowing the concepts of living with it. So now that's, I think those are, the, that's the key, key part of the, the challenge that government policymakers are going to face. Shefei, would you like to respond as well? Um, well, just a follow-up of uh, what Xiaobo said, I think, um, also um, to uh, Winnie's previous um, <clears throat> comment on uh, what the country can do between the Olympics and um, the party's Congress later this year. I think the real change has to come from people. <laughs> so, so far the Chinese government has 
really scared people. So catching COVID is really scary for your own health, also for your larger social networks. There's a lot of uh, public shaming going on for COVID um, patients and cases. Um, so one of the things um, China can do between now and later this year is to allow people to think for themselves how they want to live their lives uh, if the pandemic drags on. Um, so um, um, it, um, so zero COVID is just one among many possibilities. So if people can change their mentality, can think for themselves, okay, maybe there are other ways. <laughs> I want to live this way, I want to try that. Uh, maybe I don't want to just um, be <laughs> so obedient, uh, snap. I don't want to live with the snap lockdowns. So if there's some open debate discussion on how um, the country will look like after COVID-19, that will slowly generate some change um, and eventually lead to <laughs> some uh, bigger changes. Well, thank you. And, and speaking of imagining alternatives and also, um, you know, re in relation to what Xiaobo was saying earlier about messaging, um, I don't know if you guys noticed that recently um, after the, the news report after the Winter Olympics, I, I noticed um, very interestingly um, several reports mentioned a very specific number about the uh, the, the number of um, infections during the Winter Olympics um, at the Olympics um, compound. I think they said there were um, 437 cases um, that detected uh, during the games at the Olympics compound, and they all recovered. And I wonder, and, and recently um, there was this uh, post by Zhang Wenhong also specifying this number. And I, I was actually, <laughs> maybe that's my wishful thinking, whether that's a signal saying that, you know, it's um, with this new variant and, and also even with the positive cases, um, it's actually, you know, for most people, they do uh, recover. Um, I, I don't know whether that is, that is in any way signaling any any potential for um, you know. Trend, let me think. Let me just respond to you. You is a little bit wishful thinking. Let me tell you why. In fact, yesterday there was someone uh, uh, for, uh, on the Weibo posted a clip of Mr. Huang, who is a deputy um, a disease control uh, in charge of disease control of the Winter, Winter Olympic. If you look at it. That was a video he's answering that question from Nandu, a reporter from a Chinese uh, reporter on the specific you know, numbers you mentioned, actually it's 483 uh, uh, infections and no uh, ever, almost, this is the most important part. He said nobody obviously had a, a, uh, hospitalized and most of them are self-recovered. That one, Ziyu. That is shocking because, as you said, it's not just the number they mentioned so specifically, but also he mentioned about zi self-recovery, and that's the first time. And, uh, you know, you're truly actually for this message. I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting because this, if this one, a lot of people obviously caught that and for this message, this, this clip to say, well, can can the Chinese government use that to just let other people, all the, you know, all the local governments, this is Xu Fei's point about local governments, if can all 
local governments can do this, specifically numbers, right? We had 1,000 people infected. How many self-recovered? How many actually uh, nobody died? So why n- there is no, none of that since last, uh, two, you know, since the out- first outbreak. Well, then guess what? Last night I woke up. That uh, post, the regional post, was uh, was de- was deleted. It was deleted by the regional Bojo. So that gave you kind of yeah. So it was now there. The Zhao Wenhong post is still there, at, at least uh-huh. you know before. But right. <laughs> I'm telling you, Mr. Huang's that clip is it's actually it's from official uh, television. And can you believe that? So that one was uh, was actually become maybe so many people commented that becomes yeah. sensitive. If nobody commented, that should be all right because it's open public information. You can find it elsewhere. But because that the board, whoever originally posted, got nervous and self censored. That's what happened. So let so you don't be so. It, it, yeah, it's, there's some signs, but it's still not that. Okay, um, I think for, for the interest of time, I would like to shift gear a bit because here there's a question specifically um, uh, addressed to Bill. Um, could Bill Bacall comment further on the need for a robust social protection system, especially a pension system? My understanding is that the current system is highly fragmented and this frustrates mobility of accumulated rights and was an actual entitlement of an old age. Um, what, is being, what is to be done? Um, could you comment on that, Bill? Yes, thank you. The uh, pension system is a good example of, of uh, problems that affect mo- pretty much all of the social protection, uh, all the components of social protection. Yes, pension system is highly fragmented. The, the people who have good pension uh, uh, promise to, to receive adequate pensions are formal sector employees in urban areas, basically, if you're, if it's a, a, a pension system that's rooted in contributions by employers and employees, which means formal sector, then that system works pretty well. But the the social pension system, which, uh, which is one that anyone can join, which isn't based on contributions from employers, is still divided between urban and rural, the the adequacy of the benefit that you can receive is very, very, it's not adequate, not nearly adequate enough. And as mentioned, um, it's there's still this problem which has been around for a long time about what we call portability. So you move from China's population is highly mobile now, but these pension uh, systems are managed locally. So if you, You've been contributing to your pension in in uh, Sichuan, and then you migrate and you want to go work in Guangdong. I mean, how to how to capture the benefit, the the contributions that you're making in both places one day when you retire is still has not been resolved yet, and it's still a pending question. Uh, so similar issues apply to medical insurance when he mentioned that there is pretty much universal coverage. So almost everyone is enrolled in the system, but the adequacy of the benefits are vary greatly depending on whether urban, rural, formal, informal, and so on. Some of this touches on a, a question which has come up 
a couple of times, and I'd like to mention also relevant to, to poverty and social protection and all of these issues more broadly. And that is, there's something interesting always to me about the Chinese system where ministries, local governments, ministers, officials are always competing with each other. It's a system really based, you want to get, you want to advance, you do it by competing successfully against your counterparts and others. It's not based on cooperation. So there's no urban poverty program, but there is an urban debau, you know, this minimal living system, uh, living standard allowance. That's, that's managed by the Ministry of Civil Affairs. They don't have the right, they're not supposed to be dealing with poverty. There was a poverty alleviation bureau, which is now the rural revitalization agency, entirely focused on rural. While there's a ministry of human resources and social security who deal with social protection. And then there is the ministry of civil affairs who deal with uh, the DBAO and how to, but poverty is not, poverty cuts across all of those. There are people who, whose problems won't be solved unless all of those pieces are in place. But instead of having someone able to coordinate and come up with consistent, coherent policies, you have the system where they're all competing against each other for resources and for credit for what they're doing. So it's, uh, anyway, you know, time's short. So leave you time for some more. Um. Yeah, I, I, I'll try to squeeze in one last question. This is from a current student and a former journalist. And I think it's related to the sort of campaign style um, policy um, implementation we were talking about earlier. And, um, and so this is from Binyang Wang and they ask, the Chinese government and official media have been using military metaphors such as victory over pandemic, but the Western world rarely use such term. The infection um, seems to be a very serious matter in China, but in Western world, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. This had a completely different psychological impact on citizens living in different areas. Um, and what will this do in the long run? Any of you would like to comment on that in the remaining two minutes? Maybe I could quickly take up because I studied the campaign style. I think Bill mentioned that very well because the you know in Chinese you know Communist Party very actually quite useful, uh, quite uh, you, uh, have been very used to this campaign style of achieving goals. And uh, uh, so in dealing with public health crisis like pandemic, when it suddenly hit, the campaign style mobilization actually may be a plus because if, you know, it, it, it's, it's a sudden, it's, it's a, you know, it's it's a huge uh, 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 impact. So you needed the response being, you know, a kind of a you know a be able to uh, to mobilize the resources. you know, sort of the jiguozhi, uh, and that I think China obviously tried, especially in the beginning, in the first wave. I actually noticed this campaign style in the very beginning because if you recall, the term was to set up command center, a command post, and that puzzles me. Again, as a political science, as a public administration specialist, we always know that our system existing to deal with that. But obviously, when a crisis happened, you wanted something, you know, kind of above all the fragmentation. So that's what happened. The challenge, of course, the problem is that if, if the pandemic, the crisis lasts this long, 
two plus years and, 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 and going. That kind of campaign style, you know, the sudden short-term mobilization uh, style, uh, I may not work with that well. In fact, you do. I think Xuefei mentioned about this uh, central local problems. A lot of local governments has its own policies, and that turned out to be the case. Now, the really interesting contrast, to, again, with the United States, notice that the United States, from the very beginning, as a federal system, from the very beginning, the federal government never really said, okay, so who is in charge of a, you know, a, a vaccination? You know, it was who buy vaccination? Never really a question. So the federal government buy up all that and drugs and tests. All the government's kind of at the very beginning, there was very little discussion of that. If you look at the history of China's vaccination rollout, there was actually before 2021, I think of the December 2020, they were discussing who pay for it. The local governments don't know who pay for that. Remember, China is a unitary system. Supposedly, central government, it's a unified system, right? It's a centralized system. Yet the discussion on who has who pays for and you know vaccines and, and, and drugs and so on, it was a debate, it was a question. Only by I think January, early January, they said, okay, central government is paid out of this uh with the subsidy from uh, central central finance, central taidong. So Again, you know, system exists to deal with this kind of, uh, you know, pandemic. When you don't have that, you know, short-term mobilization may work, but long-term you need a much more, you know, institutionalized system rather than this campaign style thing, because it, that, that works short time. In long-term, it really won't work. And in fact, also the questioner also raised the question is, yeah, it has certain psychological impact. All of a sudden it's like a war. Well, maybe that's the intention. You know, you want to, I think England or Britain also had this war footing. Isn't it that, that Boris Johnson used the war footing or some European countries used that? Never in the United States, but certainly used that. Even U.S. had to set up special coordinated groups. Didn't use the campaign style. You do still have that. So, yes, each country has its own problem with the existing institutions. Some are better, some are worse. So China obviously felt that it was not enough. You needed sort of another group, uh, another sort of a kind of body. It's sort of an ad hoc body to, to do that. And that calls for this campaign style kind of re response. Thank you, Xiaobo. Uh, I still got more than 15 questions in the chat box, but unfortunately we are approaching the end of the, um, the event. We have already sort of exceeded the time frame of the event. Um, but it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity for both me and I think also for all of you to listen to today's discussion. So um, thank you very much, Bill, Xiaobo, Xiaofei, and Winnie for joining us today. And to um, all of you in the audience for attending and for asking the questions. I very much look forward to welcoming you to another LSE-SPP event. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.